An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, anything you're celebrating, happiness and merriness to you always. Um, we have a very cool show today. I'm interviewing Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. He's uh, an award-winning playwright who is the showrunner, executive producer for a show called Kindred on FX on Hulu. And it is based on the Octavia Butler novel of the same name. Kendrick came out in the late seventies and it's this science fiction fantasy historical. <laughs> I, can't, sorry, I can't get the genre quite right, but, but for those of you that are fans of Octavia Butler, um, this is a must see this show. And for those of you who aren't, you'll get introduced a uh, very cool show, but we have a great conversation about that show right now. And I hope you enjoy it. So, um, I thought I would cheer everybody up this holiday season. So we're going to have a little blast from the past. Um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed my daughter, Lauren, and we talked about the song, have yourself a merry little Christmas and just the etymology of it. And it was so much fun talking about it. I thought, you know what, let's replay that this year. Um, just as a, a fun little Christmas, fun little thing in our Christmas stockings this year, because there's so much crap going on. And, uh, and after that, we'll get to the interview. So anyhow, this is a blast from the past from a couple of years ago. Uh, me talking to my daughter, Lauren, about the song, have yourself a merry little Christmas. So there you go, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Lauren. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, for those of you that listen to the bar regularly, you know, uh, both Lauren and I, although Lauren in particular loves languages, she um, studies languages and she studies about language too, you know, and we talk about language all the time, ever since she was a little, her brother's like that too. We we all like talking about language. We're just fascinated with it. English being one of the most fascinating languages. And uh, <laughs> Lauren's like, eh, maybe. Okay, what what's, what's a real fascinating language? There are so many, though. But I would say at least a language that has tones is yeah. pretty fascinating. All of As like Chinese. Like Mandarin Chinese, yeah. And yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Lauren spent some time in China last year, and we talked about Chinese. Uh, I'm still stuck in the nega, nega, so I don't know about that. I will pass right now. Um, but today, we thought, in the spirit of the holiday season, Lauren is going, we're going to have, I'm going to have a discussion with Lauren, she's rolling her eyes right now, about a very famous Christmas carol and the lyrics to it. And it's interesting that these lyrics are changed. Let's talk about that right now. Lauren, take it away. Yeah, so I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Christmas carol, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Um, I feel like the lyrics that we hear the most often are the revised version, which was actually first sung by Frank Sinatra. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about the original first. Um, Yeah. Not to interrupt. But the original was sung by Judy Garland. Yes, in the musical Meet Me in St. Louis. Meet Me in St. Louis or St. Louis? Meet me in St. Louis. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you, you guys, if you could have seen Lauren's face when she looked, she's singing that. <laughs> oh my okay, God. so uh, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, Judy Garland. And the the original song was meant to be kind of sad. It's kind of looking back, right? Exactly. It's at the point yeah. in the show when Just everyone's really sad and they're yeah. like, you know what? Everything sucks, but let's have a Merry Christmas now. Okay. And then, so that had some lyrics, and then it was changed to be what? It was changed to just be a bit more joyful, so it could just be a more neutral, happy Christmas song. Mm -hmm. And I I looked it up, and it was actually Frank Sinatra that asked for them to change the lyrics. Yeah, so he was the first one to, uh, I believe he was the first one to record this new revised version. And now that's what everyone records. That's what Buble recorded. Yeah. And and most of the time when you hear the song now, you hear the change version, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's go through the lyrics. Uh, do you want to go through the old lyrics first and then we'll go through the new lyrics? Okay. I, I was kind of thinking of doing a side by side. Sure. Go, go for it. Yeah. Learn. You know what? <laughs> Take it away, Lauren. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> so we have the first stanza. This part is the same. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. In the revised version, um, in the revised version, we have from now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Whereas the original lyrics are next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. So the revised version is everything's good now and it will continue to be good. Whereas the original is it's kind of bad now. But you know what? Next year. Next year. OK, so, so do that again. So so how does it sound now? Now it's from now on. OK, but do the first part of the song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Mm-hmm. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Okay, got it. That's how it is now. Yes. Okay. And then, and it's the same with the next stanza. It's the same shift between the two sets of lyrics. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. That kind of implies that they're currently miles away as well. Mm-hmm. And that from now on, they will continue to be miles away. As opposed to next year, all our troubles will be miles away. That has the, the subtext that currently this year, our troubles are not miles away. They are right okay. here with us. So in the original, instead of from now on, it says next year. Exactly. In both the first and second stanza. Okay, Lauren, I'm going to ask you to do a big favor. Can you just sing the first part of that both ways? Do it the original way and then do it the second way. Would you do that? Okay. So we have, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Original, next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Versus, I'll sing the second stanza for the revised version. 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Revised version. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Wow. So that is a lot different. The So the from now on is more comforting. But the next year, I, I what, it, what would the, be the, the what word would you use to describe that? Next year puts everything in the future. From uh-huh. now on, it literally has the word now in it. It makes uh-huh. it more about the present and the continued future. But the br- I want to get to the bridge and the final stanza because that's where the real shift happens. And that's where you really feel the poignancy of the original lyrics, okay. I would say. Let me ask you this before you get to that. Mm-hmm. Do you know why it was changed? I, I looked it up and I believe Frank Sinatra just wanted more joyful lyrics. Mm-hmm. A lot of these um, pop standards that are jazz standards were written for musicals and made sense in the context of these shows. Mm-hmm. And then when they were taken out of the shows, sometimes the lyrics stayed the same because they could still just be sung on their own. And sometimes they shifted just a tiny bit so that um, they could be sung in any jazz context outside of the theater. So this is a, a situation where, although Ella Fitzgerald recorded the Judy Garland original lyrics. So that's interesting. Go on, Ella. <laughs> okay. But anyways, I want to get to the bridge because this is where it's really interesting. Okay. So the I'm, I'm going to start with the revised because that, that's what people are more familiar with. We have, here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, period. That's a statement. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more, period. Okay. Sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah. Notice the present tense. It's just taking in the scene. Here we are. This is lovely. All our friends are here. The original lyrics, once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, comma, faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more, period. That is a full statement in the bridge. It's not two separate, you know, statements describing the scene. It's saying, here's what's going to happen next year. Once again, just like it used to be, all of our friends will be near to us once more because they're not with us right now. So it's only, it's like the difference between a period and a comma changes the meaning of the stanza as well as the words. So it's kind of a run-on sentence. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of your commas, because the sentence is still going, faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more, right? So it's trying to finish its thought. Yeah. And then the other one, here we are as in... Uh, is it olden? Is in olden days, happy golden days of your period. That's a period. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's, that's the statement, that's right? Statement. That's all it is. Yeah. Wow. And then the final stanza is what like is really emotional. Okay, wait. Okay, before you get to that, can you sing these <laughs> these two first? <laughs> okay, okay, sure. So, um, the uh, the revised lyrics are: Here we are, as in olden days, happy golden days of your. Faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more. Versus, once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us, will be near to us once more. Wow, that that actually gave me goosebumps listening to the second one. Different, and it hits different in 2020. Okay, and we haven't even gotten to that parallel yet. It it really is a song for 2020 in many ways. That this has been a year, (laughs) and uh, the song is saying, "Just wait, just wait. Everything's going to be okay." Mm -hmm. As opposed to kind of, 
Everything's just, great. Everything's great now. Wow. Yeah. But no, you the, really feel it in that stanza. And yeah. I like the way you phrased it. The original is just wait. Everything's going to be OK. The revised is everything's great. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and, those, and those are two different songs. They're two lovely songs. Yeah. The revision is a fantastic revision because you can't tell that it's changed. The rhythm fits. Everything fits. It's a great revision. It's just a completely different song. And you can really, really see it in the final stanza. So Okay, let's go for it. So we have, in the revision, through the years we all will be together if the fates allow. This is the only moment of doubt in the whole revision. They kept in if the fates allow. Hmm. So even though it's like, we will all be together. Well, okay, fine. If the fates allow. That's the only moment of hesitation in the inside. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how you play your cards. If you play your cards. Maybe right. we're not 100%. We're 94% right. sure about this. And then the famous line, hang a shining star upon the highest bow, which is completely different. We'll come back to that. And then the conjunction, and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Okay, now what does that mean? Hang a shining star upon the highest bow. What do they mean by that? They're just talking about decorating a Christmas tree, put a star up at the top of the Christmas tree. They're literally just, they just threw that in for it to rhyme with allow and now. And it's just decorating a Christmas tree. Okay, let's go to the other one now. Whereas the original, instead of through the years, we have someday soon, we all will be together if the fates allow. Notice that that moment of doubt in if the fates allow hits different when there was doubt at the beginning, someday soon as well. So you're bookending that phrase with doubt. Someday soon, hopefully we all will be together. But if the fates allow, they may not allow it. Yeah, the first one through the years will all be together if the fates allow almost sounds like, you know, if you're not busy during that yeah, time. Yeah, it's more of a throwaway line. <laughs> yes. Whereas the first one really shows how much it's up to fate and how much we cannot control if we will be together someday soon, which again is hitting in the pandemic. When will we be able to gather with our loved ones again? I don't know. It's a lot more doubt in the first one. It's like this may not work out the way. Doubt. It's all about doubt, you guys. Okay. And then finally, instead of, or second, penultimate, instead of hang a shining star upon the highest bow, we have until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Isn't that a crazy difference? It's a completely different line. You have, we're decorating a Christmas tree versus everything sucks, but you know what? We're just going to have to get through it. And then here's, here's a really interesting difference in one word. So we had hang a shining star upon the highest bow and have yourself blah, 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 blah. In the original, until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. And what's so interesting about that one conjunction that's different is the revision is kind of just two different cute things. Let's decorate the Christmas tree and Merry Christmas. You know, like it's kind of just back and forth. (laughs) Right. Let's hang that. Oh, by the way, Merry Christmas. Whereas the until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So therefore, and this is the thesis of the song, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas keyword now. Because we honestly, this song is about hoping for next year, but we don't even know if next year is going to be great. So all you have right now is what's in your control. And what is in your control is to have yourself a merry little Christmas now. It is fascinating to me how in the original, every word is important. There are no unimportant words. And in fact, the power of the word now at the end of that is so important. It's irrelevant in the other one. 
you could end it on have yourself a merry little Christmas. Now it's just who cares? Have it now, tomorrow. But now it's so important in the in the original, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say the rhyme from Fates Allow, Muddle Through Somehow, Merry Little Christmas Now, just all three of those thematically, everything is up to fate except for what is in your control. And so the the fact that the rhyme carries through that theme as well is just really, really nice in the original. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do, Lauren, because you've been so nice about this. <laughs> uh, rather than sing these two, if you could sing just the original Judy Garland, the whole song for us, then that'll be a nice way to end it, okay? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year, all our troubles will be miles away. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon we all will be together, if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. That was so beautiful. Thank you so much, Lauren. Um, Lauren Hi'ilani. One more, you guys. Uh, Lauren, you're tearing it up on TikTok right now. Tell everybody your address. or Oh, my God. Why are we plugging my TikTok on your pocket? All right, folks. If you like Avatar The Last Airbender in Hamilton, at Lauren Hi'ilani. L-A-U-R-E-N-H-I-I-L-A-N-I. Thank you, Lauren. Anything else? Happy Kwanzaa, everybody. Yeah, see, she keeps it 100 right at the, <laughs> <laughs> at the last. Okay. okay, thank you, Lauren. Love you much. Okay, bye. Oh, God, that brings back so many memories. That was so much fun. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed that. And now um, here's my interview with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins talking about Kindred. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um... Nice to have this gentleman on the show today. He's got a really, really cool show out on uh, FX or FX via Hulu. I never know how that works. FX on Hulu. FX, oh, FX okay. on Hulu. Wow. There's actually a placement type of... Uh, <laughs> we just put this shit on Hulu, motherfuckers. Uh, but uh, he was... Uh, 
He's an award-winning playwright, uh, was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2016. He's a professor of theater and performance studies at Yale University. But more important, it is the showrunner of Kindred, which is the show streaming on FX on Hulu. Mr. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, welcome to the show, Brandon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you here uh, on the show here. Such an interesting thing that you're doing on television right now. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been um, a long, a long journey, but here we are at a rest stop. Yeah, I want to talk about some of that, too. So let's talk about Kindred. This is uh, based on the Octavia Butler novel that was done like 40, over 40 years ago, like in the 70s, right? 45 years ago. 1979 is when it uh, was published. Yeah. So tell us about this story. It's kind of a science fiction, fantasy, historical kind of fiction thing, right? Yeah. It's, yes. Yeah. Fiction thing. You see, my words are very vague today. It's that holiday thing. <laughs> Larry, how did yeah. you get so vague all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard book to describe. Yeah, it is. Even she in her lifetime, like, yeah. decided it wasn't sci-fi. Though it seems like she, you don't get to decide those things in the long run. Yeah. Um, but it's a novel about a woman named Dana, uh, who's an aspiring writer, uh, quite a loner type, who yeah. is living in L.A., um, and kind of all of this, all of a sudden out of the blue, she begins to have this experience that turns out to be time travel yeah. and she's being sent back to the early 19th century, sort of the 1810s, Amazing. 1820s, yeah. um, every time to kind of rescue a sort of accident prone white boy, then eventually man named Rufus. I love that his name is Rufus, by the way. Well, oh, cause yeah. it was written at the time it was written. To me, I would think Rufus and Chaka Khan was That's like, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> was like, it had to be in the back of her mind. So, <laughs> listen, the amount of Chaka Khan I tried to get in the show, effects <laughs> was like, you don't have my brain. But, uh, uh, yes. And, you know, over the course of the book, she kind of begins to unravel mm, yeah. the significance of this young boy in her life. And along the way, of course, she has a, partner or, you know, in the original book, it's a marriage, but in our version, yeah. we call it a situationship with the white man, Kevin, who winds up getting uh, brought back to the past with yeah. her. It's a really interesting story. We'll get into some differences from the book, of course, to this, you know, where I'm sure there had to be, but let's first talk about your journey in this. Like, when did you first get, um, I heard that you uh, have been trying to make this for a while. Is that true? And how did, how did you first, uh, learn about this, this book? Um, well, I mean, Octavia Butler is just one of those authors who's just been like my favorite since I was a kid, literally. I mean, I started reading yeah. her when I was 13, 14 years old, wow. um, but you know, Kindred was one of the last of her books I encountered because, um, when I was coming up, she was just sort of thought important enough that she was being taught in colleges and on syllabi and, mm -hmm. Um, and I think especially for this book, because I think it's this sort of interesting um, outing in terms of like the canon of like American literature that deals with slavery. And I don't know, I first time I read it, I think I was maybe 18, 19 years old. And I think I was really struck mm -hmm. by it's one of the first times I'd sort of read a book that felt like it was talking to me or about me in some way, because I was an aspiring writer and I had these sort of interesting, like many of us do, um, entanglements of black and white in my family tree. And right. no one really put that in literature. I'd never seen yeah. it in this way. Um, and, you know, I, it was a book that really haunted me. I must've gone back to it about three or four times. And mm -hmm. in 2010, I was like living, <laughs> I was living abroad 
trying to be like my best version of James Baldwin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, I brought all these books that were really meaningful to me, but mm-hmm. I was also spending a lot of time watching television. This is sort of the golden age of television. You, you were watching television in Germany. Yeah, it wasn't legal. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's a little different experience. Like when they dubbed the, the, <laughs> the American TV shows in German and then it's dubbed back to English or yeah, whatever. Or, uh, I think I was just straight up downloading it from places I wasn't supposed to download. But oh, okay, I, you know, right. Please forgive me. Like, don't arrest me. But yeah. But yeah, I was, but you know, it's like the golden age. Like people were watching like Breaking Bad sure, yeah, you know, yeah. shows. It really felt like something was happening in that form in a different mm-hmm. way. And I remember rereading this book for like the fourth time and I closed it and I was like, this is a television show, you know? Yeah. And, um, interesting. majority of my like career is like based on just being a fan of things and like wanting to see the thing basically. And I, I, went that. And I was yeah. like, we got to make this a TV show. And then like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> it took me six years to kind of Who's this crazy playwright talking about making TV? Literally like who, he was sitting in a mattress on the floor reading books, going crazy. But now why did you think TV show as opposed to film? Cause I know people heard this book has been an option many different times, I think. Right. And it's been, it's been an option since 1979. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because at that time, you know, the biggest thing was roots. Remember like roots, this is before your time course, but you know, when I, when I see this, it kind of makes me think of that just by, it kind of has a similar look to it in some ways, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but, uh, Roots was all about family and lineage, of course, you know, Alex Haley and all that. And this has some, it's a bit of a cousin to it in this other genre, which I find kind of interesting because that was kind of in the air. Who are we? That question, where are we from? And that sort of thing taken in this different way. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing about Roots was that we're talking about an era when there really wasn't a ton of information research on mm. on slavery available to people. Right. Right? I mean, that was yeah. the profound thing about what Alex Haley did is he really was out there yeah, piecing stuff together, detective story wide, and that television show was a it was, first of all it was a high point in the history of television. I think to this day it's considered the most successful limited series in history, television history. But it was an accident of programming too. Is that true? Um, A little tidbit on the side. Well, they didn't know what to do with it. They thought, what is this thing that we made? (laughs) This is going to be a disaster. And at the time, those types of series, they would drop one a week. Like Rich Man, Poor Man was a big one back in those days. They would drop once a week and bring people back every week. They said, you know, we're just going to air this like eight days in a row, like eight nights in a row. And just almost like they're burning it off. And it turned out to be this unbelievable thing that people showed up every night and it built and built and built into this like avalanche of uh, viewership. It was really amazing. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I think there definitely is like a lot to be said about these sort of high points in black cinema or television that, that were just like tossed away. And everyone's exactly. like, wait a minute, here's a viewership. <laughs> yeah. you know? What do we throw away? It's like a perennial (laughs) issue. I would say like, you know, point to almost anything. And it has, I mean, it's so funny. I would say too, that it it really casts a long shadow. I mean, that really cemented for a lot of Mm -hmm. people, their visual, the visuals they associate with this time period. So Mm. I think it's impossible to make work without being in conversation with, or, you know, being Mm -hmm. influenced by, by what they did. I mean, you remember being a kid and people playing, your name's Toby boy on the playground. Like that's how deep Uh that was, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I take that, I mean, I take that comparison with, with much pride, you know, people see some kind of kinship between us and that. And why did this story speak to you personally? Why do you think you felt you really had to make this? I think because, you know, for me, 
this time period is just the thing that's staring all of us in the face all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the legacies of it, the way it still lives with us, the way it shapes the things we've taken for granted. And I'm mm-hmm. always curious about how people are so quick to have an opinion about it and yet actually mm-hmm. know much about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that Octavia Butler herself, she was inspired to write this based on a mm-hmm. similar encounter, I think in a classroom where a classmate stood up and was like, I'm, I would go back in time and kill all the house Negroes. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. She was like, what are you talking about? You were likely a house Negro. You know, and I just felt like mm-hmm. for me, it was the first time I'd read a book that really asked me to think very carefully about who I yeah. would be in that time period, who I thought of how I would survive, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm someone who's got family, not a ton, but we have some stories passed down about life under that horrible system and mm-hmm. I just never saw the complexity of that um, shown anywhere, right? Like, yeah. like all you really see are stories about the same three historical figures, you know, the people, you know, every other story is a runaway story. But the truth mm-hmm. is, the majority of these folks, they survived, they persisted, and they survived. It's a way of life. Yeah. yeah. And I was curious about what that, you know, day to day, what that is. What does that feel like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was, you know, that was, that was what the book did for me. It really kind of hmm. opened up all these questions I hadn't asked before. And also, you know, there's, we have, as a country, I think we're quite allergic to talking about the histories of miscegenation and mm-hmm. racial entanglements, voluntary and otherwise. And yet that was a significant part of this like economic system, right? Like the dirty mm-hmm. secret is that everyone's related. And, um, I thought there was just like, you know, I'm also a sucker for family drama. And I was like, why are we not thinking about this as one big family drama? Ultimately, I really give you so much credit, Brandon, because you do this with so much sensitivity, you know, you have an amazing team there. I know as well, but you know, it takes a certain amount of sensitivity going in to treat, to not be contemporary and have an eye that is, I won't say non-judgmental, but it's, it's using just a different lens because it's it's tough to portray people as they were. I think it's hard for people to understand that and that relationships are complicated. It's not as, you know, black and white as we would like it to seem, right? There, there aren't clear-cut villains all the time. People go from villain to non-villain like many times, right? Over the course of their lives. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's sort of why I thought it was a TV show because that was the only way to really, you know, TV is about living with characters over time. Yeah that's the only way to really get a sense of someone's full being, mm-hmm. you know? And I also think it's so funny. I mean, I've done in the theater, I've done a lot of stuff with history. That's sort of my bread and butter, but I'm always shocked by how many people think the past people in the past knew the future. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, exactly. These did not wake up going like freedom's coming. They were like, Oh my God, yeah. another day here. You know? And Absolutely. when you break life and stories down to that, you get a real sense of how people really lived and thought and like breathed. Mm-hmm loved. And that's the stuff that just interests me. Yeah. Dreaming was a luxury. Uh, that's a luxury of the idol class. You know, if those days it was every day was a challenge to get through that day into, you know, do what you had to do to get to that day to think of anything else was a luxury. Yeah. I mean, there's a really famous, um, historian, sociologist named Orlando Patterson who talked about being a slave was about, it was a kind of experiencing of a social death you know, that you are in some ways just a passenger in your own life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and it really sparked a lot of people to start thinking through like, well, what is the emotional life of someone in that space, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that stuff just moves me so much like this 
you know, people sort of, you know, one of the details I think about all the time that I found during our costuming research is that people would sort of sew little things onto their uniforms just to individuate mm-hmm. themselves. And that little needlework was like where they put all their expression or how they like found their individuality. And those are the details I think that just make up good story. That's the stuff I think we're, we're ultimately trying to chase. Yeah. Let's talk about this process. Cause there's a lot of things you're juggling, you know, there's, you know, the sci-fi type of rule book that, you know, you're going to have those nerds who are going to be tracking your every move, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what do you mean she can bring the ring back? Well, what, how could, where did their clothes go? I mean, little rules like that. Then you have the social justice warriors who are going to be clocking the relationships, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and making sure that that's on point, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, of course you just have people that just want to, you know, see this, a good story or whatever. And, and see this develop. Uh, what's the balance in that writer's room of these type of elements? It seems very daunting. And and what? Tell me, talk a little bit about that process. How long did it even take to to get up to the point of shooting? Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I was sort of, you know, FX became involved in 2016, and then mm-hmm. it was just little old me uh, for about. <laughs> four years. Just oh my like, God. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Were you, you know? writing different drafts or? Oh yeah. Yeah. And you wow. know, the thing about adaptation is you're, you're both trying to make the show, but you also have to protect the property. That's what you're tasked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you're yeah. Kind of, right, you're right, half, right. half the time you're like a broker, you know, you're like, well, I know you want her to be a white man, but you know, you're sort of constantly having to like renegotiate <laughs> that. Right. Um, but in terms of like, once we were able to pull folks in, you know, I did have that exact mindset you're hinting at um, being like, I have to cast this room with folks who can appease the nerds and the social justice warrior and just like mm-hmm. at home eating popcorn. And it, it turns out that that's harder than you think. I mean, most writers are just writers, you yeah. know, they write what they're interested in. They try to get involved with what they're interested in. So you have to be a casting director as a producer to cast your writing yeah, room. Yeah. And I'm sitting there also because you know I think it's also easy for people to look at a property like this and go, mm-hmm. "This is roots." So you know, and you're like, "Well, no, actually, there's like a lot more interesting, weird genre stuff going." Yeah, I need you to help me find those people who are interested in telling that line. And I watched a ton of TV, being like, "Who's right?" Looking to be like, "Who's right on these shows?" Like that felt kind of cousins to mm-hmm. anyway. But um, yeah, we had a really amazing kind of sci-fi that came out of the sci-fi world, like hard sci-fi world, mm-hmm. um, sort of our mythology chief. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, one great writer who whose mother had actually optioned the book in the 70s. So he grew up hearing all the versions of people trying to make. Wow. Um, we had a couple of like intense Octavia Butler fans and stands, you know, oh, wow. um, we have, you have like, to quiet them down a little bit. Okay. And then, uh, we had a really talented young writer who was just very good at like historical diet. Like he just understood how to pitch into like historical voices, you know, mm-hmm. you just pray them ingredients will cook down into the stew ultimately. Um, but yeah, you, so once you're kind of in the show, you're just in the show with a bunch of writers, you know, you sort of yeah, yeah, solve yeah. the problems as they come to you every day but we had a when they sort of when fx had decided to move forward with the pilot Uh they gave us um like a mini room basically really just to see if there were legs to the story and then um we shot the pilot i learned a ton because that was really my first time shooting a pilot and um and then out of that process we had we reconvene we could reconvene that room and we kind of 
we had an eight episode order. We had to figure it out. And uh-huh. this is by the way, during COVID. So, you know, every writer's room is four hours. Right. <laughs> Eyes are crossing. And yes, exactly. Yeah. I had like mm-hmm. a newborn, like it was a wild experience, but, uh-huh. um, but incredibly gratifying. And then of course you get on set and it all falls, you know, it all falls apart. You're just like, you yeah. know, you're just dealing with like hurricane season. In Atlanta. Of course. Yeah. I read, uh, that, uh, you, uh, we're able to look at different drafts of her novel, which fascinated me because I didn't even know that, you know, n- novelists would be willing to share drafts of their work, you know, as opposed to just the work, you know, let alone multiple drafts, you know, but that's fascinating to me. What would tell, tell us about that? Well, it did help that she's dead. So her paper yeah. <laughs> yeah, her papers are housed at the Huntington in Pasadena, mm-hmm. California. And yeah, it's a great um, library. Great. Yeah, it's an amazing machine. library. They have uh, Langston Hughes, uh, some of his work oh, there. Oh, yeah. Actually. I was like blown mm-hmm. away to this little Yeah, gar- they have a great collection. Yeah, it's one of yeah. the strongest in the country. Mm-hmm. But um, her, her, her papers had just been released very shortly before we had um, we sold the show. And I spent about two weeks there going through everything that she had. And, you know, famously, she said this was the one book of hers that she felt like she never quite cracked. Mm. Interesting. Because it's like one, you know, it's her best known novel. And I was like, what what was she trying to crack? Right. And I read, and you know, she's also a younger writer than she was. She wanted to be a master, of course, at a certain point, but Mm -hmm. she was still learning things about her craft. And Mm -hmm. it was amazing to just like immerse myself in all of the things she tried and thought about and attempted to do. And and I really began to think about this as trying to actually expand on the things she gave us, mm. you know, using the finished book as a map, like try to get at some of the big ideas and thoughts that she was wrestling with because yeah. you know, everyone knows she was, she was a very big mind. I mean, ahead of her time. Absolutely. And is that the challenge of adapting something? Like, how do you approach that? Because you're right. It's not interpreting or just, it's not like, just transferring adapting is a completely different animal, right? Yeah. I mean, on, on a, just a basic level, a novel is a novel and a TV show is a TV show. They do very sure. different things. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a novel that's written in first person. It's set in the seventies, mm-hmm. written in the seventies. It's yeah. sort of retroactively or retrospectively in the past tense. And I felt like television is, is immediate. It's, it's, it's a pretty objective, you know, it's third person mm-hmm. for the most part, or at least third person close. And so on mm-hmm. one level, you're just trying to figure out how to make the story live again in this different set of rules, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also felt early on, you know, I was going back and forth with the estate a lot at that time. And they told me that she, they were like, you know, Octavia would have wanted you to make the show for now. You know, she wouldn't want mm-hmm. you to just and she made the book for her moment. She wouldn't want you to make the reiteration for now. And I took that to heart and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so what does that mean? How do I make the show for, for the 2010s at the time? But when now t- early drafts, did, did you set it back in the seventies? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I tried mm-hmm. and similar to her, I tried every path of the forest I could, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. And yeah, I felt like early on though, something was happening when I said in the seventies where people sort of sentimentalize the seventies and uh, you know, it's, it's all what comes uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackson five and like bell bottoms. And yeah. I was like, <laughs> you know? right. and I felt like there was a need for me to try to just make it live more vividly for people. Like to not let sure. them hold and remove because they wouldn't feel implicated by what the, what the, um, story is asking us to think, which mm-hmm. is like what we do in the past, you know, how would we survive or what assumptions are we making? And I also, you know, personally, I'm someone who doesn't love when an adaptation tries to replace the book. Whereas there's a show called The Watchmen that I worked on. Uh-huh. Congratulations, uh, by the way. Yeah. 
Oh, thank mm. yeah, thank you. But you know, Damon Earl, Damon Lindelhoff, the creator, early on was like, "We're gonna, we're doing a sequel. <laughs> it's an adaptation that's a sequel." And I thought there was something really bold in that move, and I think it paid off, right? Because mm. um, you're suddenly my relationship of the book, I can relax about. <laughs> and also it really rewarded me if I understood the book, cause I could see the moves that the writers were making or something, yeah. or I can see the way they were in conversation with or honoring the book. And that's just my personal taste. What I prefer out of a television adaptation, you know, cause I also don't want people to feel like this has got to be the be all end all. Like I hope sure. his PC is like six or seven adaptations of Kindred, you know, holograms, video games, theme parks, right. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so yeah, but that was sort of my, that was my attack on it. Ultimately, and, you know, so much thought went into all the choices. I feel like kind of ready to debate all of them. You know, yeah. one of the big ones was in the book, she's married to a white man. Yeah. It's an interracial relationship. And of course that was a hotter type of situation when she wrote it, exactly. you know, culturally where in the TV show there, it, it's a meet cute, you know, right? Yeah. You know, they, they're starting something, you know, you're, you're dramatizing, um, a relationship happening over in front of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A little different. Yes, definitely. I think, um, you know, that's sort of rooted in that 2016 time change. I think mm -hmm. I did because, uh, yeah. 1979, we're like a few years out of Loving versus Virginia. You know, we're talking about people who likely weren't taught anything about slavery in their in school, right? You can sort of sure they survived the civil rights era, but there's a real element of naivete that you can assume on their part. But I felt like, you know, in the 45 years that had sued, or 40 years, I would say, there was, you know, there's just been incredible advancements in social thought. Mm -hmm. It was very hard for me to imagine. Um, like it kills me that people really like romanticize the marriage in the book, but if you actually read, <laughs> he's yeah. like not amazing to her. <laughs> he's like, yeah. you know, he, he's, there's a reason why she's time traveling. <laughs> a little bit. She's like, just a break. Yeah, she was, <laughs> but, I gotta know, get away from this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I gotta go from one colonizer to another. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> there's like a 10 year difference. And, um, you know, he sort of expects her to type all his stuff up. Like it's very, it's right, kinda, right. It's a whole different view and the way relationships existed. And there's way too much to unpack in that type of thing. Way too much. Yeah. And I just felt like for me, there was a more interesting challenge in trying to see if I could make a legitimate marriage happen over mm -hmm. the course of the series. But like, and could you really just explore the reality of like the day-to-day -day experience of dating someone outside your race, which is, which is a lot, you know, because mm -hmm. sometimes that outside world creeps in and you have to deal with it. And that becomes as much of, of your dynamic as, you know, mm -hmm. who's messy and who's clean. Um, and so that was, that was the bold choice we made, you know, and I think we're stick we're sticking behind it, but it's been kind of interesting. Yeah. It's been one of the more kind of controversial kind of elements to, to come out of this. Well, it's real interesting. Cause I don't think I, well, I definitely haven't quite seen this, but sex between, a, you know, white man and black women happens in two different time frames. It actually happens in the same time frame in two different ways. Mm -hmm. And you, the way that you handle it is incidentally, you know, which is kind of interesting too, from both standpoints. Like I just have sex with my slaves. It's just kind of what yeah, we do. What's wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, it becomes an interesting moment. I think at the back end of our season, how that puts pressure both in both directions on those guys. Right? Absolutely. It has to. Yeah. Uh, 
looking at the example of the other, they're calling into question, mm-hmm. you know, things they think they're feeling inside of their own relationship. And that's just, again, I think that's part and parcel with, um, the themes of the show itself and the book itself, which is just like, what do you think love is? Like, what do you think desire is? Like, well, you I know. think because of your setup, the way that you've done it, it really poses so many questions like that are side questions to what we're watching too. Like what would happen to a couple under this circumstance, especially with the racial element, what really happens to a white man, you know, who's a sensitive guy like Kevin, your character, if he's in that time, I mean, when he didn't want to go back, I didn't blame him, you know, it's like, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, there's, I feel like this could have easily have been like 20 episodes, you know? Totally. I mean, let's hope we get there. Definitely. But it's I, true. I mean, like for that, just that first season, I'm hoping you get more seasons and everything. No, you totally. Know? I mean, you know, yeah. cause it, these are dense questions. Like we yeah, still have very much so. and yeah. we turn away from the questions all the time, but those are to me like, that's what I'm hoping people kind of leave the show wanting to talk about. Like, what is my attraction rooted in? And like, I think I'm black, but also like the oppressor and the oppressed run through my veins. And what does that give me the right to say this or that? And then you have elements. God, there's so much. And I don't, there's really no spoilers, you know, in this, but you know, she's, I guess we could say why she's traveling. Right. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's kind of to save this young white boy who, she feels she ultimately learns she may be related to maybe, you know, who knows, you know, yeah. from when she's dressed out, she doesn't yeah. know, but okay. So here's my question to you in the writer's room. Have you guys thought about, are we making a black savior thing here? <laughs> like, like white woman saving, I mean, black woman saving white man. I mean, what are like, were there any traps that you talked about and were there other type of, you know what I mean by traps, you know what I mean? Where you- yeah. I'll say that, well, you know, the book itself is a question about what black saviorhood is. So I think mm-hmm. we only cover about like a third of the book in this first, uh, first season, but yeah. you know, if you push forward, you kind of understand that that becomes a huge question. Yeah. You know, what are we, who are we saving and what are we saving? You know, what are um, we saving? Right. Yeah. yeah. Of course, like, I, you know, like I said a million times, like, not to you, but to the world. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that has done more damage to our understanding of this time period than like Hollywood and like film and TV, because it it shored up all the kind of tropes and cliches and stereotypes that we're fighting against all the time. But, you know, there of course is the, the real trap is like the white savior narrative, right? Which I think the book itself toys toes the line with a little bit, but with Kevin being this sort of unconditional support system for this, for this black woman who's a, who basically is a child to him that he has to feed hamburgers to seduce, you know, or, you know, you're getting a lot of, it's, we got some kind of crazy notes early in the process where like, Oh, I want to hear them. Well, I mean, let me mm. not be fired today, but you know, but, you know <laughs> they're like, man, these, we really think you're villainizing these slave owners. And we were like, but they are villains. Hold up. We you think you're villain that. Well, because it's like everyone wants everyone to be everyone wants all the evil characters to be dimensional in Hollywood. Everyone wants to be able to sympathize with the bad guy, mm. you know. And it's like, well, they're mm. still bad guys in the same way that mm. we're the future's going to think we're bad guys. So we just got to get used to that idea that maybe it's about being more than a good or bad guy in this world, you know. Mm. So I guess that, it's not talking out of school, but you know, when you when you do a pilot, they do focus groups, and you kind of watch the focus groups, and sure, um, one of them was a kind of specifically black women's focus group. And I was shook by how many women 
who watch a show are waiting for the moment when the character who looks like them is going to get assaulted. Mm. You know, and I just didn't realize how mm. banal that wow. experience was and how much it colored wow. me to, to approach this. And mm. I had thankfully made this choice like early on that I didn't want to aestheticize suffering in this way. I didn't want to make, mm-hmm. I wanted you to feel close to the person who's suffering and not zoom out and like look at the pretty composition or whatever. So that those are those are important to me in the room. I'm just like I don't want to sit here. It's it's the exploitation of people in history, but it's the exploitation of actual actors who have to come to set and live with these things and feel these things, and we have to make it worth their while ultimately, right? That's just part of the ethics of storytelling as as I see them, you know. Um, but there's a million traps that you can fall into when writing about this material or writing about anything that has to do with like quote racial themes mm-hmm. because you know, it's easy to rewrite guests who's coming to dinner like a thousand times. Mm. Right. Um, but what you really want is to show after dinner, the post dinner conversation about the dinner. Cause that feels like that's maybe where we are more broadly. Uh-huh. Was there any, uh, discussion from the actors where they felt themselves uncomfortable at any times with certain things? Uh- well, I, I mean, the problem is I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm an over communicator. So I early on, <laughs> I'm like, talk, talk me through it. I want to understand what you're going through. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of support on set for people. They also were, I tried to cast actually very mature who like understood the themes of the book, understood what was being asked of them, who I thought were pretty responsible people overall. And I think mm-hmm. they had an ensemble energy that ultimately held held comfort for everyone or made space for people to kind of break down and then come back, you know, but there were some really tough days. There were some very tough days on set. I'm sure you can imagine, yeah. seen mm-hmm. show, you know, yeah. um, but overall, like, I think everyone feels very bonded and actually very eager to try to get back in there. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something like this too, is there second guessing? Like after you made an episode and you look at it, you go, Hmm, Ooh, you know, <laughs> should we have, Mm, should we have done more in this thing? Cause it, this is the type of work that lends itself to many different approaches, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think you always, I think you're always going to feel that way. I mean, I think you're always going to look at something and go, man, we really should have done this and not this or, you know, but I do, I am someone who like front loads. My therapist calls me a catastrophic thinker. So I, I think about wow. all the things happen you know and i try to choose one that feels least catastrophic so i think i did you tell your therapist you realize what i do for a living right (laughs) exactly yeah like yes i take your insurance but um but you know i think there's you know you're i just think i'm always going to feel that way ultimately Mm -hmm. and i also honestly at the end of the day whenever i got overwhelmed or nervous Mm -hmm. or second guess anything i just went back to the book i went back to octavia's body of work. And I was like, what would she do right now? And that's, that's the kind of path I chose to follow every time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One of the more fascinating characters to me is Olivia, who's Dana's mom. Dana's our lead character. And what's the actress name who plays Dana again? Oh, Dana? Uh, her name is Mallory Johnson. Unbelievable. Like, saw her here first. <laughs> yeah. We're, let's talk about her for a second, because she's, she's so different 
in she's very engaging. She's completely unpredictable, which is a yeah. great um, quality to have as an actor, you know, but always believable. You get on her side quickly, but you're not sure, you know, if she's a reliable, <laughs> <you know? laughs> like, should I be on her side? You know, but yet you do it. That's, I feel like that's a quality of that actor. Am I right about that? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I definitely set out to do like a black female anti-hero. Absolutely. I see it completely. Absolutely. And yeah. Mallory Johnson, I mean, she's truly one of those annoying classics stories of like somebody auditioned who nobody had heard of. And it was like, yeah. who is this? You know, and granted, she's, you know, she's Juilliard trained, incredibly accomplished, serious actress. Sure. You didn't find her on TikTok or anything. No offense. to Sure, sure, sure. But, yeah. you know, she had like this incredible emotional depth, like yeah. range that was very shocking for someone her age. And she really, how old is she? She's maybe 24. Or, I mean, she oh, very she young, literally yeah. got this job. I think she was a, her last semester at Juilliard. So good for her! Wow, know, she is unreal. And like, it's hard for people to understand how tough it is to be number one on a call sheet. And oh, her second job ever with this type of work material. I mean, yeah, she. I think she understands what she went through, but she's. Yeah, I'm so. I was just so inspired by her. Anyway, she amazing emotional depth. She kind of embodied to me this kind of Octavia Butler energy of like being very much like, mm. like a, almost like a loner type, like very like individual mm. singular. Mm-hmm. Like you said, no one yeah. acts like her, you know? Yeah. And she was just super sensitive. She just felt everything very deeply. And she just also felt very protective of Dana, who I think is a difficult character to be aligned with. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, people yeah. don't know if they want to like her or not. You know, agreed. But you yeah. need an actor who's gonna like be there with that character, and she, man, she, she did it for me. It was also such a gift to see a young actor kind of being born in this way. You know, I think she, over the course of that season, I think she like gets stronger and stronger, and mm-hmm. some of the stuff she's doing by the end, we were just like, oh my god, like who is this person? So, yeah, one of the characters is, uh, it's such an interesting, it you know psychological even thing is this character of Olivia who is she's her quote unquote mom. I'm saying quote unquote, because I'm not sure even what to believe about that, honestly. Um, But one of the toughest aspects of that character is this character makes a decision to live in that past. It feels like a decision. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Kanye did say slavery is a choice. I mean, in this case, (laughs) technically she's a free woman. I'm, I'm like, wait, did Kyle, is he, wait, what's going on here? Was he right about this? Oh, <laughs> so, but, but she, technically she's not though, right? I mean, she's a black woman living in this time frame. In 18, yeah, 15, I mean, well, we, I don't think is, this is know? a spoiler anymore, but, you know, she, so she is definitely an, a new element that we've added to the, to the mythology of the book, but she's probably based yes. on there are drafts of this book where this mother figure kind of existed. And, yes. Tell me more about her, the evolution of her, yeah. what's going on. And to me, the biggest challenge is how does one make that hmm. choice? Yeah. I mean, the thing to think about Olivia. So Olivia, we learn, we learn that this thing happening to Dana seems to be genetic, right? That it's a thing that her family, mm, right. her, her maternal lineage is haunted by these women who seem to like up yeah. and leave suddenly or go crazy. And we're sort of asked to realize that 
there may be some linkage here between what's happening to Dana and, and her. Yeah, it, it's a time travel sickle cell. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> hypertension in some way. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the great metaphor here. Um, but, uh, you know, her mother, this happened to her mother when her mother was her age and, and mm. it was received in her family as a kind of violent act. Mm-hmm. But actually, Mm -hmm. she's been trapped in the past. And unlike Dana, she's unable to get to the future, get back home, Mm -hmm. basically. She she has had to live in the past for, by the the end of the season, I think she's been there like almost 20 years, right? Um, Wow. Yeah, and and it's really, you know, the metaphor we kept using in the writer's room was like, this is like imagining people whose parents are incarcerated, right? Mm. Where they're in this kind of place where the world is going on without them. They're not developing the relationships with family that you get to develop over time. And how do you, as we kind of put pressure on this theme of kindred, you know, where Mm -hmm. does a mother and daughter begin and end when they're separated, when they're out of sync with each other? Um, And also it's about thinking through a black woman coming out of the Reagan eighties, you know, what her kind of values might be, what she might've grown up thinking and needing from this time period and seeing what happens when she's there versus this sort of millennial. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a certain proximity to like liberation, (laughs) like the need to liberate people, to help people, to sacrifice Um, Mm -hmm. ideas of like black collectivity, I think are different in those iterations. Um, And in any event, she, you know, we're witnessing someone who, because Dana's able to go back to the present and kind of check in with her world. This is someone who's literally by the end of it has lived a third of her life in another period. And when you think Mm. about that, you're like, what do my memories mean if my memories are from the future? (laughs) Right? Like Mm -hmm. who am I if the thing- Was that a fever dream? Yeah, exactly. You're like, well, did it even happen? You know? Um, And we were just interested in exploring like on that cellular level, like how do you, Mm -hmm. who, who do you think you are when you can't prove- the validity of your experience, you know, and you just have to make a choice to not lose your mind holding on to the past and stay in the present. And that also might mean sacrificing, you know, the people you think you come from. Yeah. It's very interesting uh, character. Yeah. And I, and I think hopefully there's a lot more we'll learn about her. How many seasons do you think you would, I mean, ideally like some shows said, we want to be on forever, you know, but there's a, you know, as you say, you're, you're kind of reimagining some of this too, but is there a perfect number of seasons you see to tell this story? Is it um, a- The honest answer is no, but I will say that the book mm-hmm. itself to me suggests um, three or four clear season shapes. In it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and right now my task is to kind of complete the book, you know, and then see, you know, we also obviously set things up or story engines for those who know what that means, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of maybe get us past the book in some ways. But mm-hmm. for me, it's about trying to really just unpack what's there as fully as I think we can. And I think that's going to take us a few years, honestly. Why do you think though, you know, you'd say many people have tried to do this and everything over the years, even yourself. Why do you think the world is ready for this right now? You know, I think about that a lot because I, you know, I feel like we've, we, we've, we've been ready, but you know, it's about kind of waiting for the powers that be to kind of catch up. And mm-hmm. I think two things, one is that again, Octavia Butler was always thought of as like ahead of her time. And I think that this is the time mm-hmm. when she was ahead of, I think that she, all the things mm-hmm. she was thinking about and processing in the late, you know, 20th century 
are the things she we're living in the stuff she warned us against and, and mm-hmm. asked us to think about and be concerned about. So that's happening. I also think that, you know, for, for those of us who are like devoted fans early on to what she was doing, you know, I think a lot of us are now just coming of age and we're all kind of cultural makers. I mean, you, you would be shocked by how many people, if you ask them right now who would cite her as an influence, we're just now those people in the world trying to make stuff. And so I think yeah. in some ways there's a flowering, like you said, of we're somehow we're like her kids or something. We're all kind of trying to, yeah. you know, build out the world. I think she began to ask us to think about. Um, and, you know, the truth is like, this is, this is a 45, this is a classic of American literature. Like, you know, this is just, uh, it's clearly like an evergreen set of themes and topics that just consume yeah. American identity. And I think it, you know, television is that form for us now where we feel most comfortable disseminating and discussing and debating these things. So I just think it's like the book kind of finding its new expression of itself in some ways. Yeah. I I feel what's interesting is that this to me could exist pre George Floyd and after George Floyd. I use that as a, as a marker because I think a lot of people's eyes were open during that time. Some people got extra sensitive after that, you know, some stories may be harder to tell after that, whatever. But this is one of those rare that I think could have existed, you know, before and after. Did When the George Floyd incident happened, where were you in your production cycle? Had you already been filming? Were you just writing? And did it change anything, your discussions about story or character? I mean, I'm not going to lie. They ordered the pilot after George Floyd. You know, I've been developing oh. it and then we've been working really hard on it. But there I think that event kind of unlocked the state wow. of this story being told for a lot of people. And I think suddenly there was like a moment of like, let's figure out what this is, you know? And that said, you know, if we look back at American history, unfortunately, there's always a George Floyd. Hmm. You know, we, we, we seem to go through these cycles of yeah. remembering and forgetting, remembering and forgetting. And I think that's why the book itself is such a powerful allegory, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think 2016, <laughs> Uh, I always say, if you ask me why I said that there, I'm like, because it was the last year, I think we can all kind of agree on what was happening because, <laughs> that, you know, that's very good. Yeah. It was like a, oh my God. a lot of people, right. We suddenly felt yeah. room back in history. And I right. think that's Dana's experience. It's like, she keeps, yeah. she keeps being yanked back into this time that she thought she was done with. Um, and that just literally seems to define like the mm. American social program. We just, yeah. Keep, yeah, I can even actively feel people now, you know, this, it's so funny. People talk about call themselves like anti-woke and I'm like, well, the opposite of woke is asleep. So you want to go back to sleep? Like, what are we talking about? But there's, there's the pendulum always swings, they say, you know? Um, and I'm, and I'm very interested in people paying attention to what the, what that swing is, you know, Mm. um, what does it mean to watch people fall back asleep again, you know, or try to suppress what was truly one of the craziest years in human history, I would say. It's, it's funny because you even look at the iPhone and go, oh, I miss that iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, so funny. My friends and I were just, we, we're now at that phase where we're getting sentimental about those first six months. <laughs> yeah. like being afraid of being like, we're going to die. We're all like, man, I really caught up on sleep. Yeah. I watched all of, you know, The Office, you know, yeah. <laughs> sort of. It was a different time. but And of course, the dirty little secret to go back a little bit to your other comment is that there's always been woken asleep. It's not, this is not a, we just, sometimes we have different names for it, you know, 
But uh, I was just reading an interview that Rod Serling did in like 1968, and he was talking about the social justice responsibilities in television and why that was important. And he talked about blacks in particular, you know, and why it was hard for whites to see some of these stories, you know, and I thought, man, now they would call him this woke virtue signal today, you know, but he was just telling the truth, you know. Man, people forget that, like, all those, I mean, Twilight Zone was just one allegory after another. Absolutely. About the historical situations that everyone was, all the anxieties of that day, you know, but time has sort of turned it into this fun house of like spooky stories. It's like, no, he was, he was actually trying to talk about the moment. And that's that's always what speculative fiction, sci-fi, social horror, all these things are always trying to do Mm -hmm. is is speak to the, speak to the contemporary moment. So what has the reaction been to the show so far? When did it premiere? Tuesday. We dropped on Tuesday. Tuesday. So have, what's the initial reaction? What, how has black Twitter weighed in on this? You know, I'm not on Twitter. I mean, I, I, I gotta be honest though. Like I, I know the actors are on Twitter and they'll sometimes send me these memes. Oh, wow. And we are tackling. Mm-hmm. It's you know, the thing is, nobody knows how TV gets made, man. But it, you know, it's like I a know. million compromises, but you get to the thing you hopefully you can be exactly. proud of, you know, exactly. but, um, People have me rolling. I mean, well, yeah. what's important is people are watching, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll be honest. I'm not one of those people who like reads press like at all. Like I just sure, sure. in my in my other lives, so I do that. But I think <laughs> like people are like people are watching it, which is kind of yeah. you know what you want, what you need, and sure. People call Sarah Petty Crocker. <gasps> Petty Crocker. Wow. Wow. I mean, the way people also come in for. Wow. Afro continuity is wild. Oh yeah. Don't get people started on the hair. Oh, I man. mean, we are out here dying, but you know, listen, all you wow. want is to engage. That's it. You know, Twitter is the place where people go to act like there's something, but you know, people aren't really telling you who they are sure. in the quiet of their own home. Completely. Yeah. I think people are really staying with us and I'm shocked by how people are just like binging the whole thing. immediately. I mean, some people have completely binged it already, but I guess, I just, awesome. you know, I'm, I'm not from this world. So I don't know. You know, this is my first television show, but I'm just an innocent playwright. I'm just writing musicals or whatever, you know. But yeah, yeah, I think people have been very generous, and you know, I think like mm-hmm. you know, I think there's been a little bit of pushback from like purists of the book, but I kind of I knew that was going to happen. Like that is a whole different thing. That that's no big totally. deal. And like yeah. honestly, like I'm such a psycho fan. Like I would have been that person. Like I just you know I, I understand sure. what what's happening there, but. But like I said, you know, time kind of time will tell. Like we just need people to watch it and we want to have those conversations. I think we're all yeah. open, open uh, interlocutors in that way. And some it may point people uh, to Octavia Butler and they may discover her. And, well, that's the great. And, uh, that would be the great win, I think, for me privately, you know, because I, I really felt this whole time like I'm somehow more than anything I've done. I'm like in service of another artist. And mm-hmm. I'm, like if mm-hmm. I can like send people back to her work than win, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I always had a fantasy too, that like somehow we make a show that was like a read along. Like I remember when game of mm-hmm. was happening, I had, I, I was not someone who read, you know, those books were like a trillion pages, but, um, I remember always being impressed by talking to my friends who had read the book, who were watching the show. And I was like, Oh, that must be mm-hmm. a fun way to see something. If you were really like engaged in that way. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. Wanted to have some way to make people do that with this show. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen. I don't know. Never know. Never. It's never too 
Never too late to get a certain type of flowers, though. I think, you know, mm. I think it's uh, good, especially the fact that, um, like, I don't think she had the cultural permission in the day to be the type of genre writer that she was. You know, it, had, it was such a niche, you know. And now there's so much more cultural permission for that type of things, which is pretty cool. Because of her. I mean, she was the only black yeah. female sci-fi writer. That was it. That's a lot of yeah. work, man. And like... That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, there are like three folks in that world. You know, she's called the godmother of Afrofuturity because, or Afrofuturism because, mm-hmm. you know, part that whole mission of those people were like, we got to imagine a future where black people exist. Yeah. It's, our imagination has to get broader. That was a Richard Pryor joke, by the way. You know? Is it really? His joke about Logan's run. He's like, so in the future, white people think niggas ain't going to be around. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 I think too, like, you know, she's... Mm-hmm. It was it, think of just how insanely difficult it is to pioneer in that way. And she just yeah. devoted life to making that happen. And you should look at those interviews with her because people always ask her, like, were you self-conscious about it? Like, whatever. She's mm-hmm. like, no. <laughs> She's like, I knew what I wanted and I was gonna take what I wanted. And you're like, that yeah. is the attitude you gotta have have in your have in your life ultimately, you know. Well, I wish you the best of success and luck with this. And again, really tune in, you guys, you know, just we, you know, we go through these kind of phases in television where they call it the golden age and stuff, but there's so much good stuff out there. But man, if you want to see a show that's just doing it different and doing it well, Kindred is amazing. It really is. Uh, the quality of the acting and the writing is just really, really good stuff, Brandon. Really congratulations on this project. Thanks so much. I mean, I'm, of course, a ton of coming from, from you. So thank you so much. Oh, of course. Kindred is FX on Hulu, you guys. Get that shit right. <laughs> and FX on the Hulu. <laughs> That's right. You know, and it's all dropped. I think all the episodes are there, so you can binge it. Um, and it's really an interesting story, you know, and it's uh we definitely want to see more of this. And let's all root for it. You guys gotta watch it. Tune in, talk about it, get on Black Twitter. Even if you're white, you should get on Black Twitter, by the way. <laughs> Just to see. I think I Elon should make a special black Twitter button where you can just Literally. You know, instead of spaces, just make spaces black Twitter. <laughs> oh, man, I'm waiting for the, the mass exodus from that, but we'll see. Like, where are they going to go? Where's black Twitter going to go? Who knows? It's who knows what's going to happen. I know. Yeah, it should be its own thing. It really should. You yeah. know, it really should. Uh, anyhow, take care, my friend. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, you guys. Kindred is the show. Merry Christmas to you. Happy, happy Kwanzaa. All of it.